Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this episode with my wife, Kathleen Costello, discussing the preparation of the insane clarinet variation from the Henestera Concert Variations, um, side note that she actually used the Gold Method app and adjusted it, and we're going to talk about how she did that. But if you're interested, if you don't know about the Gold Method app and you're interested, I'll leave a link in the description that you can check it out and get more information. And if you're interested in trying it out, you can get your first month for free, no credit card required. But like I said, before we get to that, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of product services and resources to the brass playing community. As brass players, the mouthpieces we choose to play will have a huge impact on the sound of our instrument, as well as how easy it is to produce that sound. Unfortunately, many of us find ourselves playing on a mouthpiece that is ill-suited for our needs and it makes things way harder than they need to be. If you're interested in trying out a new mouthpiece, Houghton Horns is the place to go. Houghton Horns has a wide selection of mouthpieces to choose from, including Giddings, Greg Black, and Pickett, and many more. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Everybody and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am here with my lovely wife, Kathleen Costello. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm pretty excited about this episode and what we're going to talk about because it's pretty raw, it's pretty um, recent, and um, I'm hoping that we can kind of dig into this topic that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but uh, we've all experienced and dealt with, which is, uh, what do you do when you are being forced to prepare or you are having the opportunity to prepare uh, the 1% most difficult music that you could come across? You know, So a lot of the music we prepare is kind of like we find this groove and we know how to prepare it and we know what to do. And most of the things we prepare are going to be fine with just some generalized way of preparing. But certain things, like what we're going to discuss in this episode, um, are not that. And you have to find new strategies and they can cause um, just a lot of... Um, reasons for growth and a lot of creativity in the way that we would prepare it. And so uh, I'm going to kind of turn it over to Kathleen to describe what piece that we played this past week in the orchestra and what's so difficult about it for the clarinet and just we'll uh, then go from there. So why don't you take it away? So the piece in question, and every clarinetist will know this, that might be listening right now, but it is the um, Henestera's uh, variations, concert variations for orchestra. So um, for the less people who might not, not know quite as much what that means, um, it could also be sort of considered like a concerto for orchestra, but you know, there's a theme. And then um, the variations that follow are based on, you know, the musical material. Some, there'll be some sort of link to that original theme. And um, it's passed around the orchestra featuring either like one musician or in some cases, two musicians. But I think that's it, right? With the exception of, there's a couple like really pretty interludes, mm -hmm. like one for strings and one for winds. And then the finale is like, everybody kind of joins in, you know, has this crazy like raucous ending. Um. But the clarinet variation has is infamous, basically, um, in terms of orchestral uh, repertoire or excerpts. And it's like, I think mo many people would agree is probably the most challenging excerpt we have. Sometimes it's asked on auditions. I think at this point, I might like not take an audition that was on there. <laughs> like I might, that might be enough for me to just be like, mm, nope. Well, and we'll talk about that <laughs> as we get later in the episode about the challenges presented in an audition mm. versus challenges presented right. in, a, in a concert or a rehearsal, right. but we'll, we'll cover exactly. that. We can, it's, get, yeah. we can get back to it. 
Um, so if that gives some idea of, of what it looks like. Um, and our conductor, Carlos Iscaray, he recounted this potentially apocryphal story, but it, it may be true. I think there's a high chance that it's true. But apparently this particular variation is so much harder for the clarinet than any other instrument because the story goes that the composer was either in a relationship or in love with the flutist. And then the flutist like either like left him for the clarinetist or had an affair with the clarinetist, but there was like a love triangle going on. There was, you know, a maligned composer. And supposedly the clarinet movement is like payback revenge <laughs> for this. And um, you could believe it. As, yeah, like, totally. As, yeah. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like <laughs> everything makes sense now. And it's the flute excerpt is difficult as well. It's right, comes right before the clarinet one, but it's not... It's not nearly as difficult as the clarinet excerpt. Um, and there's, I don't know, I guess we don't have to get into it now, like why it's difficult. I could explain it maybe. but I think you should, uh, to the best of your ability, kind of just go take us through what is so challenging um, beyond the fact that it's just at 132. Right, tempo. Yeah, the tempo. Yeah. So the flute variation before it is uh, 16th notes uh, or in 2-4 at 132, and then the clarinet variation is at 132, so the big beat stays the same, but it goes into 6-8, so it right. becomes dramatically so faster. All the 30s, all the 16th notes now are, you know, however much, you know, proportionally faster. Um, so that's part of it, but it's also, it's the range. It's almost a full, we counted it up, almost a full four octaves of range, which the clarinet actually doesn't really have. It's like basically out of the range of the instrument. Um, and then a lot of it is just the movement like between the registers, like having to move really quickly in and out of, um, especially the highest register um, because there's things you need to do with your air to support that movement. Obviously your fingers are moving very quickly as well. So um, I would say, you know, that those are the two biggest reasons, I guess, at least for me, maybe some other people could name some more or some different ones, but those were the two, um, the two main um, sort of limiting factors, I guess. And yeah. clarinetists like do crazy things to try to like make it more playable. You know, like they'll switch, you know, to a different, you know, transpose it to a different instrument, like a C clarinet or um, maybe even like an E flat or a D clarinet, but you can't do it for the whole thing because the range is so wide that then the lower notes are not available on those those higher instruments, which would then reduce the upper end of the range. So there's a whole host of problems that would not make it so that it would be easily moved to another instrument for the whole excerpt. So there you go. Hopefully you guys aren't totally <laughs> asleep now after I went into that whole explanation of well, why. So I just got a recording of it that I'm going to play really quickly. The whole variation is like a little over two minutes. And so uh, I just felt it would be easiest after that description of what it is for you to all hear. Um, if you aren't familiar with this variation, I think it's actually kind of catchy music. I, after I lived with it for the last like three months of my life, it's pretty catchy. Um, and so I hope you think so too, but you'll probably pretty easily be able to figure out what's so difficult about it um, for the clarinet part. So we're going to take a listen to that and then we'll continue.
All right. So obviously, as you can hear, there's a lot of crazy pyrotechnics in there, uh, along with just, we didn't even really talk about the musical variety in this mm, movement where there's yeah. so much articulate playing and then there's that lyric uh, section in the middle of it. And obviously, you could hear the range and stuff like that. So preparing this kind of piece from what Kathleen was telling me is uh, daunting to say the least. And so she's played this once before, I think like six years ago here like that, with man. Alabama. And so I thought it might be if you could try to remember to the best of your ability what your preparation looked like at that point, what the result of that preparation was. So then we can talk about how you prepared this time and what the differences were and what the result was like. And then we can kind of compare and contrast and draw some conclusions. So can you remember some of how yeah, you did it then? I can. I mean, I also, that particular concert was um, at our Maestro's Ball. So at the very beginning of the season, so I knew that that was coming and I spent, you know, I had the summer. So I spent a couple of months really. And the concepts were similar to what I did this time. I would just say it was less structured. The first time, you know, I started really slow and I, you know, kind of did... I guess what we would all say is like kind of the right things and trying to be really careful about the way that I learned it and practiced it. And I remember I was doing a lot of um, scale variations in my warm up, like really taking the time to make sure I was like just working on my general technique so that um, hoping that that would support uh, the needs of this really hard excerpt. Um, but that's about all I can remember in terms of specifics. You know, do you remember how long was it? The entire summer that you were doing? Oh, I'm it for? sure. Yeah, I'm sure I spent a good two months okay. on it. Just a ballpark yeah. of two months or so. Yeah, it was. Okay. I mean, I had had to prepare it for an audition a couple years before that, so I it wasn't like I had never seen it before. I, and you know, I made a lot of my choices, like which clarinet am I going to play this on, and you know, like trying to sort out fingerings for the really high part of the register, things like that. You know, I had done before so I didn't have to like it wasn't starting from scratch but I knew what was ahead of me like I knew it would be like a long road and so and you that at that point did you play it all on a clarinet like you did this time I did, okay yeah. so that's may not seem relevant but it will be relevant later in our discussion um can you remember the result of all of that preparation and how yeah, it ended up I mean, going I just remember being so incredibly stressed that week which wouldn't be that different from this time around but it was our music director, same music director I mentioned earlier, Carlos. And but it was his very, very first concert um, as music director. So I didn't have a relationship with him. Like we didn't really have any kind of like established rapport. So I was very nervous about like, does he know how hard this is for the clarinet? Like I don't know. Like, what if he just takes this at like one thirty? You know, like I just, you know, I remember like really stressing about like how I was going to try to talk to him and approach him. And of course, like with a new conductor, you don't want to just immediately be like, well, I can't like play this piece very well. <laughs> so you have to like accommodate me. Like it was really terrible timing from that perspective that, um, you know, uh, and, and maybe I did the wrong thing. I don't know. I just, it, it, I remember like being very stressed about that too. Like wanting, not wanting to make a bad impression, you know, on our, brand new music director. And of course, you know, we all want the concerts to go well for all of the reasons, not just for me and my own ego, but like, you know, it was a big deal for him and for the orchestra to be, you know, presenting this concert with a brand new music director. And as we know now, he loves that piece. He feels really strongly about it. So um, it's a great piece. again, it's, it is, it's a, it's a good piece. It's a really strong piece. Um, but yeah, it, I, it definitely went better this time around than the first time around. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe I like tried to block block my memories of the details, which is probably good. But yeah, I think it was it was a stronger performance this time around. How? I mean, I don't want to dig too deep for unnecessarily, but do you remember what about the previous performance didn't go as well as this performance? Yeah, I think, well, distinctly... I sort of felt like with that and and we had fewer rehearsals and we just had one performance because that's how that goes for the Maestro's Ball concert. I just remember it feeling like it got worse each time I did it and that could have been my stress level just going through the roof. But like it just kind of, instead of getting better, it sort of started to unravel more and more and that was really demoralizing. Like through the rehearsals, you mean? Yeah, and even the performance, I feel like I was just like, oh gosh. Yeah, 
So we'll juxtapose that in mm-hmm. a second when we talk about this prep. But ideally, that's the point where it's supposed to be solidifying, even if just a little bit. You know, everything is theory in the practice room, as we all know to some degree, but especially when you have very few rehearsals, everything that you prepare in the practice room is all theory. Mm-hmm. And you have a generally pretty good idea. You know, our mental representations are close because we've played with this group and we know what to expect, but you don't really know what it's going to be like until you get there with those people and that conductor and and you kind of go through it. So when you only have a few chances and it doesn't seem like it's getting better, in fact, maybe it's even getting a little bit worse. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't instill a lot of confidence for the performance itself last time. Right. And it's like... At that stage, it's almost like, what can you do you yeah. know, at that point? No, it's true. And I even felt that a little bit this time, you know, like things weren't perfect, but, you know, with something that's that hard, there's not like, you're not going to make like leaps and bounds of improvement if the concert's in like two days. Like it's just not, it's not going to happen in that, in those two days. Yeah, so let's talk about this time then. So we have the reason why I think it's important to discuss that is because, as we'll talk about towards later in the episode, um, so much about what we do, uh, some of the value just comes in just improvement in and of itself. And so having the opportunity to have a previous time and then to try some very deliberate action uh, and the way that you prepared this time around gives us sort of a, a, a window into understanding if it was more successful and why was it more successful. So much more important is why was it more successful. So I I don't really consider that I coached you really through this process, but we definitely talked through what would be a, a logical way to prepare for this. So what I remember is just saying we would start uh, in advance, maybe two months with the Gold Method app, and that you would try to get a few... Um, cycles in. Cycles being, I'm going to repeat this thing a few different times. I remember we talked about that, and then we tacked on a peaking phase, which we'll talk about later. But I would love for you to flesh out what that was like and how you altered the Gold Method app and why you altered it. Try to take us into your thought process as much as possible. Yeah, so I started, I guess I should have written down the date that I actually started. I think I might have started back in November, like just like more casually, like low key playing through things like really slowly and like reacquainting myself with some of like the fingering choices and things like that. Um, But it wasn't, I think when I started it, it wasn't super structured. I just made sure I was going slowly so that I wouldn't like imprint any like bad habits basically. And then I think I ran a program three times. So before with we the get there, app. what's so the goal was re- reacquainting yourself with fingerings. Like, was it remembering any other aspects? Were you trying to refresh yourself musically? Yeah, like, just like what I wanted to do, right? Like phrasing wise and style stylistically. Um, you know, there's a couple little, which only like clarinetists would like think about or know about, but like little, like yeah, specific fingering things I did to sort of facilitate some of the like upward intervals and stuff like that. So just sort of, um affirming that I was going to, the way that I was going to work on it. Because one thing you don't want to do, which pretty much probably everybody who listens to this podcast would know, is like change fingerings halfway through or make, you know, like kind of important like changes to how you're going to do it once you've already put in a lot of work. Because then you're, you know, you're kind of having to undo some of that work and go back to the beginning and it can confuse your fingers and confuse those neural patterns. So... Um, I, that was part of that that process. But then, so the first time I ran it through the app, I just did it really slowly. So even my like goal tempo was really like way under tempo. So that was sort of forced me to only play it slowly for a while. Yeah, so for those that aren't familiar, the Gold Method app uh, is available. I'll put that in the description. Many of you know about it, but you've heard me talk about it. it for this particular instance, she just used the Etude program, which is a two-week program. Um, before we move on too too much further, I want to say that I, the reason I kind of asked about the spe- specifics of this earlier portion, um, it's I actually think it's one of the phases of preparing for something is this early phase where especially especially if it's the first time you've come across something, 
you want to do some of your due diligence to make sure you understand what's going on. So whether that's, uh, you know, fingerings, notes, rhythms, making sure you understand articulations, just the nuts and the bolts. But you also, this is where you're going to do a fair amount of your score study. If it's like, say, a sonata with a piano, you know, you want to know how your part fits in so that when you start doing this work of speeding things up and trying to imprint good habits, that you've made a lot, as many of those decisions as you can. And so I just wanted to point that out because it sounds like you did that. And then we basically would move into this phase, what I would call the ingraining phase, mm-hmm. where now it's like, I mm-hmm. understand what fingerings I want to use, what I want musically. I understand what all that is. Now I'm I'm trying to give myself a structure with which I can uh, imprint the things I, I'm doing really well. And then in a controlled environment, acknowledge where I'm not yet doing it, where the mistakes or the errors might be so I can correct those errors and then begin imprinting it. So it's learning first, understanding, and then we move on to the imprinting. And like you said, you don't want to move on to the imprinting too fast because if you haven't done all the learning, then you're trying to learn and imprint at the same time and it can kind of cross wires a little bit. So this is not a perfect process. It can be messy, but I kind of wanted to try to delineate those to demonstrate that um that general approach can work really well, even if you're not using the app. But so you did the first time through, you did slow repetitions to make sure you were doing mm-hmm. it slow. At the end of that, how are you feeling? Do you remember after the end of the first? Two I mean, weeks? like everything was, you know, when it's slow, holds together really well, which is kind of part of the goal, right? Is to just instill like a base level of confidence and that your fingers know what to do. And then as I started the next phase, like whether or not this is true. So like the second time I ran the program. So this is like, we're into January now. I just started to get really like, I could convince myself that just doing the amount of repetitions in the app was just not going to be enough for the second half of it. So the first half is like pretty manageable. And then the second half is the half that's just like really um, crazy. So I started to, I altered what the app had me like, I used the um, the tempo range set by the app as like the beginning and outer guides for the tempo. So I'd start at the marked, you know, where the first one would start, and then I would do two repetitions at like, and then increase it one BPM. So if it went from seventy eight to eighty eight, I would do twenty repetitions, two of two times each, you know, increasing once. And I got that idea from apparently, and again, this is secondhand, so I don't know for sure if it's true, but apparently Ricardo Morales, which every clarinet player will know that name, but he's principal in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And, you know, he's definitely one of the probably most famous and best clarinet players out there, just really phenomenal clarinetist. And supposedly this is what he does with something really hard. And I, I mean... And again, I could be sort of foggy on the details, but I think I think what I heard is that he would do at each number like ten repetitions, so not two, but like ten times. And I guess what well, this this will fly in the face a little bit of what you and I have talked about in terms of like needing to be to be focused and having your mental energy on the task at hand, which would be like working on this piece. But apparently, he will, and people who adopted this method will like watch movies or something while they do this because it just takes. If you can imagine, like how much time that takes of just doing that same thing over and over, so just sort of like, I guess, make it possible for your mind and your body to do that. You actually do. I guess your mind leaves a little bit of what you're doing, and you let yourself be somewhat entertained while you're you just train your fingers to do the same thing over and over. So I didn't go to that extreme because, cause again, like I just don't 100% know how I feel about <laughs> watching TV while I'm trying to learn something, but. Um, I I did that. I I probably did about twenty repetitions a day for a while of the hardest parts. But I tried again. I tried to make sure that I was focused so that I wasn't letting mistakes or bad habits with like my air speed like sneak into the process. Yeah, I I think this I think this is super cool. Again, I'm learning about preparation and the gold method, and I think. So many, you know, the the app is a good thing, but clearly in this instance, it's cool that you took the structure of the app, but then applied a variation mm-hmm. of uh, Ricardo's uh, his approach to it. So you didn't even take his 
directly. You just no, said, I just well, adapted. Right. And idea. so th- this is important to me to point out that like, this is part of the creativity that you needed for this, you know, 1% difficulty, the last 1% that you needed some creativity. It wasn't just going to be a copy paste effort, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And this exists for everybody that we're in within, within pieces of music, we're going to have certain bars or certain amount of things that that really exist in this very difficult place. Yeah. And so I'm trying to share this in a way and demonstrate this that like it is totally fine. If you some if you're someone who uses the gold method app, it's totally fine to adjust what the gold method app is to meet your demands or your needs and it's also fine to adopt or adapt somebody else's approach that it would also then fit into what you want to be able to do. You know, like this is totally fine. What matters is that you're doing it for a specific purpose. So just to make that extra clear, what was the purpose of deciding I was going to do 20 repetitions? Why did you feel like you needed to do that? Just for clarity. Okay, well, I think there's really something to be said for, and my interpretation of, of hearing about that approach of doing so many repetitions of something that's like, really in that high, high range of difficulty is that, you know, you're, you're basically just like, you're training your fingers to just go on autopilot, essentially. Like you want that like automaticity, am I saying that right? Yeah. Automaticity, yeah. Of your, of your fingers to just be, just again, for it to be so ingrained that um, it would account for um, a lapse in concentration. It would account for, I mean, ideally like tempo variation and, you know, and again, like if you do it at all these different tempos, you should probably be able to do it at just me, except for a tempo that's faster than what you practiced it at. But, you know, you can, you've practiced it at a, like all the, all the speeds, like literally. Um, so I think it's like a, just a very like kind of probably overkill way of just like covering, you know, all your bases. But what I was going to say is like, and you know, this is upcoming, like you're planning to do a podcast on deliberate practice, correct? I think next week. At some point, yeah, in the future. So this is coming, but you know, this to me falls into that category of like, you know, you run into a problem or a challenge in your work and you're, you're testing, you're testing out a method to see if that works to get the, the result you desire. Now we know that there's certain things you want to avoid. Like, you know, you want you want more, considerably more good repetitions than not good ones, right? Because that's what your body is going to remember. That's the, the thing that you're ingraining um, into your work. So I think if you kind of hold to those principles, you know, it's... It's probably going to be okay. And something that I feel I would have not said, you know, sometimes I hear people on podcasts ask the question, what have you changed your mind about in X amount of time? One of the things I think I've changed my mind about is this the idea of errors, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, obviously, we want to maximize the amount of good repetitions. No one's going to argue with that, but errors will teach you where to direct your focus. True. Like there's actually no other way to learn where to direct mm-hmm. your focus than making an error, you know? So well, having a few bad repetitions that stretch you strategically yeah. can actually, and we'll, we'll, I mean, if you want to use well, this, I do, time I have to talk some, about Well, that. I have some thoughts on that in the context of this the exact thing. So those spots where, you know, it's, you have to, you know, change the focus of your error or, you know, direct your air in a certain way for this large interval to come out or to skip really quickly, you know, that sometimes does go wrong even at slow tempos. But what, and then you, you're, yeah, you immediately have to kind of regroup and be like, okay, well, what did I not do with my air that time? Or did my tongue strike the reed in the wrong place? Or did I back away with my, you know, you start asking those questions like, what did I do that causes to go kind of off the rails? And yeah, I agree. That's what then causes you to correct it and hopefully be giving yourself something to focus on that's going to help you be as successful as possible. Well, and then in the in the context, which is just skip to this part, but one of the things that we talked about that you said, either you wish you would have done differently or whatever is just to have had, because what ended up happening in the concerts is that the tempo that um, the, that so what, what what was the top so the the very the variation is written at one thirty two. What was the, t- the probably the top tempo you felt like you could do it and you were confident at? 
Oh, probably like 104, but I could get it up, you know, sometimes like 108, 110, like it would sometimes, like it was just, I don't know, maybe like 50, 50 at that speed. So, you know, to me, that's not great. Like I'd rather not play something where you're like, chance of success is like 50%. But what I learned that I didn't- Before we do it is just that the concert, the the concerts went faster than Yeah. Well, and so the first rehearsal especially, and then, you know, I realized, so my thought thinking was, well, I'm just going to work this up. This is, (laughs) this is flawed now that I look back on it, but- I was thinking, okay, well, I'm going to work it up to the place where I feel confident and then I'm not going to push it past that because if I do, then I'm going to start to introduce bad habits and it'll make my confidence worse and I'll start to panic and it will be bad. So I will just, you know, and I'll just lay it down so that everybody has to follow me. Well, okay, that's very naive because like one versus like 55 people is doesn't like work, <laughs> often work out in your favor. Like, guess what? Like you're going to lose. <laughs> so what I realized that first rehearsal was like, I had not, because I hadn't played it at that tempo, I'd never stimulated my fingers to even try at that tempo. So that I will definitely do differently in the future. Like even if it's not clean, you have to, you have to expose your body to what it feels like to try to play it at that tempo. Because then... Again, like you're saying, I think that's where this comes in with you start to fail. And even if you're like, okay, this is now I know this is not going to be 100% clean, but what am I going to do to make it as close to what it's supposed to sound like as possible? And you have to you have to expose yourself to that to be able to do that kind of troubleshooting. And I did, didn't really do that. So I kind of did in the few days following and and actually this time around, it seemed like it definitely got better as the week went on and as the performances went on. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, and it wasn't totally clean. Like we will be honest right here and say that it was not 100% clean. But for the most part, it kind of like um, held together for lack of a better way of saying it. You know, like it was a little bit messy, but like I was able to sort of stay with the the flow of the music, which we all know is incredibly important, you know, and for something like this is, is frankly really hard to do because it's, it's hard to get back on if you get off. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I want to ask you, cause I don't even know the answer to the question. I, I remember after the first rehearsal, you know, you had gone and talked to our, our, our conductor and you had just said like, Hey, this is like just a little bit faster than what I prepared. Like, can we do, you know, you were just talking to him, trying to uh, at least let him know how you're feeling. And it seemed like our conductor was like, oh, yeah. totally understand. He He's supportive. the one that told that story. Yeah, obviously. yeah. No, he was incredibly supportive. But, very supportive. But one thing I observed was that it didn't inherently make it better that you, that you, that like when we were trying to pull the tempo back, there were still aspects of it that weren't quite lining up. And I could see that it was not. I guess, pleasing to you that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was an interesting thing to observe where like so much of it was right in the pocket and there were a few spots where it wasn't quite in the pocket, but like because your standard is so high and you care so deeply about presenting the best product, that that became something I think that you were concerned about. And I remember talking after the first rehearsal saying, okay, like we just keep digging. We keep trying to find solutions to this problem. And so... I think it's an important point that I love your perspective on to be like, you get to that point where it's the first rehearsal, you've prepared it, and then now you realize the possibility that you probably didn't think about was some of this is out of my control. Right, yeah. And to the I, like the feeling of, okay, well, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to continue practicing, continue trying as hard as I can to figure this out versus like, well, what am I going to do? I basically am going to shut down because I couldn't do it. Like it takes some resilience to continue fighting and continue even up to the moment of the concert trying to figure out. And so what was that like for you in in the rehearsals and how you tried to adjust your preparation? Obviously, part of it was just playing faster, but what was that like in that space mentally in terms of being worried or did you have confidence you were going to figure it out? Where like no, where were you? No, I did not have a lot of confidence at all. I mean, I think to a certain amount, like there's a certain level of like resignation to the situation, you know, like you can't, like I said, I don't think you, you know, it's not going to become like, you know, markedly better in a couple of days. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I sort of lost my trade of what we we're saying. I guess 
yeah, I mean, I didn't just give up, but, you know, I think there's the, you know, there's a danger too that you can go home and like work on it for three hours, but is that going to like hurt or harm at that point? You know, it's really, it is tough to know like what is the right amount of um, digging to do at that point, because also your body like needs rest. And when your body's under that much stress and you need to move your fingers really fast, I think we have to be really careful in those situations because you can start to work against yourself pretty quickly, you know? And obviously like sleep is a big deal. I was telling you, I was really grateful that for, I was able to sleep last week, which in other times like this, sometimes I'm not able to sleep because the stress will get to me with sleeping as well. So um, yeah, I think whatever you can sort of, you know, if you've got something like that or obviously a concerto or something that's really, you know, um, very, you know, exposed and high profile that, yeah, you should just try to like, you know, make the rest of your life, if you can, as sort of accommodating to that as possible. I think the reason I'm asking this question, that's all great advice. Like the, you know, like we, you can dig yourself into a hole <laughs> that's not going to help you, it's going right. to hurt you. So I think one, this is my opinion and we'll see if you agree with it. But there's a difference between I am prepared, but not for this one situation, and I am not prepared. So you are prepared, but not for this one outlier situation. Versus like the way, like sometimes people prepare in such a way where they're just not prepared for the situation at all because of whatever way they practiced. It didn't lead them to being able to. You know, it wasn't organized correctly or they didn't do enough of the slow stuff or they didn't do enough of the runs. Because we did do a peaking phase where the week before the rehearsals, you were running it three to five times mm -hmm. a day, trying to get into the headspace of performing. Like We did put that in there as part of the preparation. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on that? Is it did, do, you, do you think that's an accurate thing to say? Or do you feel like it was like, I'm not prepared because I couldn't do it in any given scenario? Um, does that question make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. I No, I think I was prepared. I think I was as prepared as like I could be because, you know, I hit that top tempo and then I couldn't really, I could. I can't do it faster than that right now. That's just like my limitation. And right. maybe it'll, maybe I'll break that if I have to prepare it again. Maybe I'll be able to do it a little bit faster. But that's my like current, like upper ceiling. And that, I think, I think at some point I just had to sort of accept that. And if it ends up going faster than that, like, well, that's going to affect what it's going to sound like because I can't just miraculously expect to come break some barrier in a performance. Like it just doesn't like yeah. life doesn't really work that way. I guess my point of all this, this, this line of questioning is that like you didn't necessarily have to go back to the drawing board after the first rehearsal and figure out how to prepare. Like you were already prepared. All of the work that you did was still relevant. You just had to be like, all right, I'm going to just try to expose in my practice room expose myself to this tempo range a little bit more than I did previously. Uh, but so that, I think that's how it didn't become all consuming, how you were able to play for 30 or 45 minutes rather than three hours mm -hmm. is because of all of that huge block of preparation that was still valuable to you. And so I would encourage people to try to think this way. That's like you, like I said, it's all theory until you get there. And then you realize, okay, it's going to be this or it's going to be that. And it doesn't mean that your preparation isn't valuable because some things didn't pan out. It just means you may have to, in those two or three rehearsals, do a little bit more tweaking that is like mm -hmm. situation specific. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's like a certain level of problem solving. And I think what tipped me off to what maybe I hadn't quite done right was actually listening to that. Andrew Huberman podcast where I can't remember exactly what he was talking about, but it, it caused like kind of a light bulb to go off. Like, oh, like, you know, maybe I do need to stress. Like I was, I was avoiding stressing my body and myself by pushing myself to a tempo that was inconsistent for me, right? Because I didn't want to introduce anything. I wanted to introduce as little negativity as possible into mm -hmm. the process. But he was basically saying in this, um, should we say who, who he is for people who don't know? He's, I don't even, 
Ophthalmologist, no, neuro. No, yeah, neurobiologist. Well, I think. He's, I think he's both. He's I an think. ophthalmologist? Or something close to that, yeah. But he's at Stanford. Uh, he's got his own lab there, and then he's got a podcast that has no affiliation whatsoever with Stanford. He just is like, I'm just going to tell you guys all about how the, the brain and the body works and all that kind of stuff. The context of what she's talking about is basically like when you feel stress, like when you're learning something and you feel stress, your brain is getting doused in epinephrine, which is called epinephrine in the brain and it's called adrenaline everywhere else in mm-hmm, your body. Mm-hmm. And so it's associated with stress and it heightens alertness. So you're like, okay, something's wrong. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? And his point in the podcast episode was... Like when you feel that stress and you feel like you're doing things wrong and you're trying, you're actually, it's like, that's essentially the gateway. You've opened up a door to neuroplasticity where learning actually occurs. And so stress is something that's not a negative. It's actually something that is a precursor to learning. Yeah. And I think we have to be really careful like how we sort of couch this or present this. Because I think if you are constantly like, you know, going too far with that, you'd be you would be introducing some potential like a lot of really bad habits. So yeah. I think I want to be really careful about what where I'm advising here. But what it made me realize is that I had to expose myself to the tempos that I might we might just end up at because the orchestra might rush or push. And then that's where we're at. So I have to know what that feels like um and to sort of decide what what things are going to be let go of a little bit and like what things I'm going to prioritize um, mm-hmm. with the notes. And so um, it was like a level of problem solving that was very uncomfortable to do, like, you know, in the middle of a week. But I think I think it really did help to sort of um, like work through that. And then also to know, like, if I am feeling stressed about this right now or pushed, like there's a reason for that. It's because I'm at that absolute limit or edge yeah. of where of what I can do. That's why. Yeah. I want to make one point and then I want to move on to takeaways, if that's all right. The one point I want to make, and we talked about this was, it seems so obvious now that like you prepared and you said, okay, like basically like 108 is like the top. 108 beats per minute. That's the top of where I feel like I can do it and do it every time and feel good. But I, but obviously the written tempo is 132. Mm-hmm. So there's a range of tempos in between there. And obviously you should expose yourself. That seems so obvious to have worked in those ranges, but it wasn't obvious even to me as you were preparing that you should do that. Mm-hmm. It only became obvious when the stimulus was presented that this is even a possibility. Right. And to go back to like talking about an audition for a second here, like I think easily you could play you could play the opening a little bit faster and then pull those really hard sections back to 108 104 and they still sound so fast and so virtuosic at that tempo that I don't I mean I don't think most audition committees would be like this is really slow you know yeah. like it would so you would have more ability to kind of control like your presentation of the music in that scenario theoretically you could really um not be at the mercy of a whole bunch of other factors. So yeah, to me, could, this is like one of those kind of rare pieces where I, I think it's probably actually more stressful to play it like on stage yeah. in context than it is by yourself under the hot lights of an audition. Well, with the audition, like the way you prepared previous to that first rehearsal would have been more than sufficient for an audition, you know, because mm-hmm. you could just come in and have grooved it exactly where you want it to be. And then it's just accessing that and demonstrating that in the actual audition. But when other people are involved, you know, conductors and the groove of the ensemble, it's like all of a sudden different, you know, factors come in and do it. So, or affect it. So, yeah, it is an interesting difference. Usually it's easier to play it in context, but obviously this is one of those. And it's only because literally it's like the maximum of your capabilities as you described. It's like that's... It's crazy that something like that exists in the repertoire that you could just have show up, you know, in the season. Here's this thing. I mean, usually that's saved for like concertos or certain mm-hmm. chamber music pieces, but you could just hypothetically have it just the hardest piece you would ever prepare show up in the middle of the season. Like that's a pretty stressful thing. And so to sort of move to the takeaways, which I, I'm really excited to explore this with you for a second. 
You described the first time you did it, it wasn't quite as structured, but it was still the best that you probably felt like you could do at that point. And it, it didn't, it went well, but not as well as it did this time. This preparation was very structured and everything was very purposeful, but it still wasn't as perfect as you wanted it to be, right? It was not perfect at all. Right. Well, but not just not that it wasn't perfect. That's an objective measurement, but like it probably still wasn't at the standard of what you hoped that you could produce. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so why is it worth it? Like, why, like, do you feel like it was worth it to have worked as hard as you did? Or do you feel like it was a waste because it didn't turn out the way yeah. you wanted well, it to? Yes, I feel like it was worth it because, well, I'm the type of person that I want to feel like, I left no stone, stone unturned, which of course I did. Like we, we just talked about that for at length. But, yeah, but know, I didn't yeah. really know that I had left a stone unturned. So number one, that's great. I learned something very specific from this experience that now I can take forward with me and hopefully will help me um, with other difficult things and hopefully in my teaching and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's worth it because... I mean, I think, well, I think for one thing, we all want to know like what our capabilities are. Like that's part of what makes um, that side of what we do um, intriguing and appealing is, you know, and gosh, I, I don't think I'll ever forget this week coinciding with the Winter Olympics too, which I haven't watched the last couple cycles of them, but we did watch a fair amount of it this week and just getting to watch like these like young people, you know, do these incredible things like under an incredible amount of pressure and seeing like skaters fall and, you know, skiers fall and people potentially get injured in the pursuit of like this sport that they love so much, you know, kind of, it just, it speaks to that like desire, I think for both human achievement, but that, you know, sometimes we do get bested by, something, a piece of music or, you know, a figure skinny routine or yeah, like the triple axel, you know, like people fall when they attempt a triple axel. It's a great risk, but they will do it anyway, you know, in front of like literally millions of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like in a very succinct way, like the music itself is worth it to like put that much, you know, into it to, to try to do it as much honor as you can. Yeah, I mean, I think the, s the simplest way for me to describe it is why I feel like it was worth it is you got better. Like in an objective way, we had this piece before and this piece after, and you said that it, this was a more successful attempt than the previous time. And like you improved. Like we're not like sometimes in our field it can be difficult to ascertain improvement mm -hmm. because we rarely ever have like i mean sometimes we come back to the same pieces over and over and over and over again but sometimes the goal isn't necessarily to do it in such a way that i didn't do it before because we liked the way we did it before mm -hmm. like we worked hard the previous time yeah. and it's about the same but when we have the opportunity to come back to a similar thing and have a demonstrably different and more positive result that's amazing to me. And the pursuit of that possibility mm -hmm. is what makes it worth it to me. Like, I didn't always believe that. If I heard myself, if I was like 24 years old and I listened to myself say what I just said, I'd probably be like, oh, like whatever, you know? But the, the, the pursuit of the possibility of improvement, mm -hmm. like what better pursuit could there possibly be? Like, no one's going to be guaranteed improvement, but the possibility of improvement and knowing that like, that's how all human achievement has happened. Yeah. It's so worth it right. to me. And I think too, like when you get to a certain level with something like those increments of improvement are very subtle, you know, like maybe you can improve your double tonguing speed. Maybe it's only like <laughs> a few BPM per year at this point or something like that, you know, just these really like seemingly like meaninglessly small amounts. But I don't know, like I think we have to celebrate those because it's, you know, I think you had to fight for them all that much harder as you crest, you know, like close to the top of what's possible. It's going to be, you know, you're really going to be fighting for that little, you know, bit extra that you have to go. But um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I just, it was, 
it was inspiring to watch you tackle like the most difficult thing that is in the repertoire and the orchestral repertoire for you. You know, the most difficult things for the trumpet are not in the orchestral repertoire. Well, I mean, let's be clear, like they're incredibly hard concertos and chamber works and solo clarinet works out there too that would I mean aspects of them would certainly rival this piece right. it's not the difference mm-hmm. is is that often you are in participation of deciding that this is going to be something you will engage with right like mm-hmm. if it's a concerto like let's say you were asked to play a concerto with the orchestra you could say I would like to play this piece or I would like to play this one if it's a chamber thing you probably work with the people in your chamber group mm-hmm. maybe you decide but in the orchestral season, we get virtually no input on what they end up doing. And so, like, the fact that the hardest piece that is one of the hardest pieces that exists in your entire repertoire could just randomly appear, mm-hmm. like, that's, that's like, cr- crazy. <laughs> and so, to watch you be like, all right, like, I'm going to try this method of preparation that I think will work, and I'm going to give it my very best, but I have no guarantee of outcome. It could completely fail, but I'm going to try anyway because what else is there really other than the pursuit of trying to be as excellent as we can be? It's inspiring. And I think that's how these people end up in the Olympics, to use that example. Mm -hmm. They're just pursuing excellence. There's no guarantee that they're going to get to the Olympics and win a gold medal, but it's worth trying. Yeah. And if I could give a piece of advice to my younger self, so I guess in fact here I'm speaking to any younger player or is maybe starting out their, you know, orchestral career, orchestral journey. And of course, this could even apply to you if you're still in school and you're playing orchestral repertoire in school. But I would say, you know, start like a journal or a notebook or something and write down what you did in preparation for something that you find challenging. Like what was, what's the process that you went through? And then when you're done, like I did this this time, but like, you know, do like a debrief in your notebook and say, okay, I was happy with this. I wasn't as happy with that. You know, and maybe some things you would try differently the next time. Um, But sort of start a record of, you know, of your work so that you can, you know, if that piece comes up again, if you have an orchestra job, you will see many pieces over and over. And there might be five to 10 years in between those pieces, depending on where you're playing or what you're doing, or if you're freelancing. Um, But to have that uh, resource there for yourself would be really incredible. And sometimes I forget with certain pieces, like, oh my gosh, there are these like 10 measures in there that were insane and I'll forget you know, and I wish I would have written down or like photocopied that page or something. And, you know, so that if it came up again, I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about this incredibly hard thing. I wish I'd started this like three weeks ago or a month ago. So that's my advice to anybody who's starting out. Just take a few minutes and just record what you did. And then I think too, like when you get to your deliberate practice episode, that'll be like a, you know, part of that idea that you're you're constantly trying to make a plan and then assess your plan and decide what was good about your plan and what you would um, change. And then you're going to constantly be refining that process as you progress. Yeah. One of the things I love about the way, you know, we talked about the way you prepared the first time and the second time, the first time you described it as I did the things you're supposed to do. I started slowly. I tried to ingrain good habits. Uh, But this time you are able to say, I did three cycles of the Gold Method app, which you could go back and figure Mm -hmm. out exactly what that meant. And then on these particular sections, I did this many repetitions in this form. Like you have such a specific record of what you did. And then now, even as we've sort of just explored what could have been different, you even know what you might, how you might take exactly what you did and tweak it slightly to account for what you felt like you weren't prepared for mm-hmm. in this time. And what to me, and I'll be curious, not only for you to answer this question, but if there's any more takeaways or any other things you wanted to share before we finish, to me, that would be motivating to be like, gosh, I can't wait. I mean, I know maybe you don't feel like that's this way about this specific piece, but to some overarching point, like, I can't wait to do this again because I could have an even better result next Mm -hmm. time. Like that would be so motivating. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that you can really become enamored with that problem-solving process, you know, and um, Mm. that when you find things that, you know, work for you, it is, you know, like Andrew Huberman was saying, you get that like that dopamine kind of like, Mm. you know, rush of like affirmation, like, oh, that thing worked, you know, and so that kind of potentially can keep us coming back to an approach that's really positive, even if you get that like, you know, epinephrine thing that's not comfortable in the beginning, but you get that dopamine reward when, you know, it works out favorably. That's what it means to trust the process, yeah. It's like, I know right now this is hard, but I've seen this process play out and I know it will get me where I want to go. So I trust it and Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick with it. Even if I'm frustrated right now, I know if I stick with it, I'll get where I want to go. Mm-hmm. That's that. That's a. I'm striving for that right now. Yeah, striving's a good word. That's what all this gold method stuff is: is striving to figure out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the striving. That's what we we're talking about yesterday. Like the striving is also kind of the thing. You know what I mean? Totally. It's if we don't have challenge in our work, if it ceases to. Um, capture our attention and our imagination and our heart and all of those things and and push us, you know, we, yeah, it's not going to be um, as engaging or rewarding, but yeah, the striving, I think that's just the best word for kind of like a heart posture or like a work posture is to be, you know, not not striving or pushing to the point of like injury or like, you know, serious mental health problems. Like everything can get like to be too far, but, you know, a healthy striving towards, um, yeah. And then I would say in addition to um, just final thoughts, we had the privilege at UAB of having um, a masterclass with Julian Bliss, which again, like any clarinet player that knows really anything about the world will know that name. Um, but he gave a really wonderful masterclass and he was helping a student with a very, um, you know, technically challenging passage and a piece of major repertoire. And so he was kind of demonstrating ways that he would work on it. And he, and I, I have no of this way to work on things, but with the altered rhythms, basically like doing swing rhythms and then the reverse swing rhythms and then, you know, um, two fast notes and a fermata on the third note, two fast notes, fermata on the third note, and then three fast notes, fermata on the fourth note, et cetera, et cetera. So I, um, in between programs, I think the first and what the second and the third time I ran it, I did a lot of work of, of kind of incorporating that in as well. And, um, I would say the deliberate practice science aspect of that, that we could take away from that would be that you're training your fingers to move really fast between like varying intervals, different different intervals within the passage, but then you're giving yourself points to anchor as well. So you're not trying to play the whole thing fast, but you're stimulating your fingers in certain intervals and then with increasing difficulty or increasing amounts of the fast movement versus the like the held movement. Um, so it, you know, obviously gets increasingly more difficult as you um, sort of take that variation further and further. So that kind of work, I think, can be really helpful for something like this. So that would be another um, practice technique I would recommend to people. Um, if you're a younger player, ask your teacher about that one because they probably know about it and could help you um, apply it to what you might be working on. So that was one um, additional thing um, or aspect of deliberate practice that I incorporated. And then I would say in addition to to taking the notes and maybe debriefing yourself after really hard concerts so that you have like, you know, a, a more clear record of what you did because I promise you when you get to be my age, you won't remember everything. <laughs> you just won't. There's too much in life um, to remember. And you may be the type of person that will only remember the negative things or maybe only remember the positive things, but your your perspective will probably be a little bit unbalanced. So if you do like a really honest kind of debrief about, you know, objective debrief about what you did and, and how things went, that will be really helpful to you in the future. Um, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm grateful 
I'm grateful to have been a part of, you know, like I said, observing your preparation for this insanely difficult thing that you trusted me to the degree, the degree that you did uh, and help letting me help you prepare for it. And I know that I am grateful for this debrief and just trying to discuss what we what was good, what we can learn, why it was valuable, and I hope the people listening to this are also able to take something away. So thank you. Um, if people are interested in contacting you because they have heard something that they're really connected with and they want to get in touch with you, how would they find you? Um, I have a website, KathleenBCostello.com. And I'm on Instagram at the same handle. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, if you've connected with anything she said, I know her pretty well. She enjoys uh, connecting with others over uh, any kind of thing, cooking, <laughs> clarinet, important things like this. But uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, had any feelings at all whatsoever, consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. And do not forget to share this episode on social media so not only other people can hear it and enjoy it, but we're trying to also create a resource for how to prepare for the Henestera variations <laughs> a little bit because it's an insane piece. And from what I understand, the more the better for how to prepare for this piece I'd like to thank well thank you once again for your your thoughts and your um, just everything you shared I really appreciate it well, thanks for having me I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast and most of all I would like to thank you for listening stay strong be kind to yourself never stop growing we'll see you next time